happiness is for some people finding the problem that is appropriate to them and that they weren't born too early or too late, that they were able to encounter that problem in their life. And I feel like this, this is my problem. I am an entrepreneur. Be inspired. We are incredibly powerful. Color outside the line. Open your mind. Dream big. Be bold. Take action. The narrative needs to change. We can fix this. We can change this. I know we can. Think broad. Think like a broad. Think broad. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broad Mike. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Today on Broad Mike, I'm speaking with Christina Lomasny, a president and CEO of Monumental, a startup that uses electrochemistry to create a nanolaminated alloy. Previously, Christina co-founded Isotron Corporation, a composite materials company, and served as its president and CEO. And that was from 2001 to 2006. So we jump ahead, and today I'm speaking with her about co-founding Monumental, nanotechnology, clean tech, and what it is to be building a startup in Seattle. Christina, welcome. Thank you very much, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. So... What the heck problem is Monumental uh, solving, um, uh, and what the heck is nanotechnology for those of us who don't know? Well, we're solving an interesting problem that most people don't recognize they actually have. It's um, We're defining a new class of metals, and we're defining a new way of manufacturing them that's cost-effective and very scalable. And the challenge that we're overcoming is the limitation that exists with conventional metals manufacturing. It's sort of a a status or status quo that we've accepted that we design around today and that we don't necessarily have to accept as a limit. So we're going to make it possible for people to imagine new kinds of parts, new kinds of engineering capabilities, uh, and to do that through materials, which are really fundamental building blocks of all kinds of things. Very, very, very cool. And so how does uh, Modumetal fit within the clean tech landscape? Well, we are redefining the way metals are manufactured. Today, metals are primarily produced through heat-based processing. So heat is the primary source of uh, or input uh, form of energy in the production process. We're using electricity instead. So we actually manufacture metal near room temperature which means for us that we can entirely redefine the, the manufacturing process for parts. We can start with the form of a part and actually produce an end part from that form in one step, which isn't possible today. Today in metals manufacturing, you have to start with melting an alloy, producing an intermediate, typically forming that, then machining it. There's a whole lot of waste in that, in that process that we eliminate by virtue of just one single step. That is, I'm almost speechless. This is beyond cool. So (laughs) beyond cool. Uh, And you've said before, I know that in conversations uh, before today's interview, you talked about the fact that you're growing metal. What Mm -hmm. what What do you mean by that? Well, it's, again, different from the way that metals are manufactured today. Today, when you produce metals, you actually kind of melt them into a soup, and then you have to form them into something. The process that we use is electrochemical. So we actually start out with the same kind of soup, But we grow metal, so we're actually taking metal from a solution 
and we're reducing it into a metallic form, and we're doing that uh, under the influence of an electric field. So we're actually growing the metal under that electric field atom by atom. And um, it's very similar. Probably the closest analogy I could come up with um, is the way a tree grows. A tree grows by adding material um, and creating layers, in fact, uh, that are the result of the seasons. So the density in wood as it grows changes, and it changes because perhaps it's springtime and it's cooler outside or it's summertime and it's hotter. In our case, we're growing metal and changing an electric field, and when we change that electric field, we get layers that grow as we grow that metal. Okay, I'm just. This is this is one of those conversations uh, on Broadway. My, my my head is just like exploding with all of this information. Uh, but I want to know about you a little bit. Um, so, what factors uh, in your childhood or background influenced you to, I want to say, become an entrepreneur and become an entrepreneur in in this area? Well, I, I never had any expectation of becoming an of becoming an entrepreneur as a, as a child, but I did grow up around it quite a bit. My my grandfather actually started a paint company um, that my father took over, and I started my first company with my dad. So it um, there just wasn't so much of a mystery around around entrepreneurship in our family, um, and so I think that's the reason that when we decided that we wanted to pursue this vision, uh, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship or an entrepreneurial venture seemed like the right forum for it, and we just said, "All right, we're going to do it." That's. That's fantastic. And and what about in terms of uh, studies in school? What what was it that led you, you know, I mean, d- down a path that's got this interest in nanotechnology? Yeah, I wouldn't say there was anything in school that necessarily prepared me for entrepreneurship. But um, but in terms of this field of study, I studied physics um, in in my undergraduate, and then went back to graduate school and. Um, and started out uh, trying to run a company and go to graduate school at the same time, which didn't really work out. But a common theme across all of that was electrochemistry. So I actually did my undergraduate research uh, right here at the University of Washington in the chemical engineering department in the in a group that's run uh, today by Professor Dan Schwartz um, that focused in electrochemistry. And so that's been a common theme across the ventures that I've been involved in, in fact. And um, and so I really came to entrepreneurship from that from the technology side. Um, ultimately, I'll say that uh, it was it was very important to me in the long run. I didn't realize it at the time that I also took a few accounting classes along the way just so that I could learn more about the terminology. I think I, I've used that uh, to great to great extent throughout this entire venture. Uh, that's so funny, and I'm so glad you raised that. We have a, had uh, several guests, uh, particularly on the VC side, who are always pushing uh, with respect to female founders. You know, know your numbers, know your numbers, know your numbers. So uh, thank you for mentioning how handy <laughs> that accounting class came in. So what was the aha moment uh, or event that you said, all right, um, I-, I need to – to start this company, which is now monumental? Well, the, the venture actually started out as an, an internal research and development project, and it seemed like a cool technology, but, um, but when we first started, we didn't really realize the, the broad implications that it could represent. Um, at some point, we, we had developed this capability of making layered alloys and making them in, um, in intricate shapes, and we started we started looking at how we could leverage this approach 
to change different kinds of characteristics in materials. Um, things like how materials corrode or how strong they are or how tough they are, how much energy they can absorb and um, everything from that to their thermal conductivity properties. And we realized that these materials are fundamentally different from the homogeneous metals we rely on today um, and that this could represent a whole new field of science, a whole new field of engineering, a whole new field of architecture um, and that really there was there was no industry that's using metals today that we couldn't touch. Um, and I'll never forget, I have a great advisor here in the Seattle area, a gentleman named Dan Rosen. <laughs> and um, and I sat down with him and just said, you know, what would you do if you were me? And I won't forget, we sat on the living room floor at his house and we made the decision that, that you know, this this somebody had to pursue this. Somebody had to see how far this technology could go. And I decided that that's something I wanted to do, that, that the, uh, the implications were, you know, were so profound and um, it, it, deserved, it deserved a run. And it's not preordained at this point that we're going to be successful, but we are definitely going to make sure that we see it through. So how, you know, thinking about this and thinking about you sitting there, you know, living room floor, you know, plotting this out, how did you assess the size of the potential opportunity? Wow. Well, one of the interesting things to note is that um, we actually define entire shifts in civilization by by the materials, uh, the primary materials of construction of the day. So there's a stone age and there's an iron age and there's a steel age and you know, arguably there'll be a com- composites age someday. Um, and so it's noteworthy that not only are materials the basis for great uh, economic value creation, but they're also just they're, they're major game changers. So it's almost it's almost impossible to size the opportunity because we're talking about you know twenty five trillion dollar metals market. So to you know use some startup jargon here, have you pivoted? <laughs> We've pivoted quite a few times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll share with you. We started out in two thousand six, right? Our first markets were automotive and construction. We obviously didn't time those very well. Uh, we've worked in we've worked in consumer electronics. We've worked in uh, the oil and gas sector. We've worked in aerospace. So we uh, we've tried a lot of things, and I think I think at this point we've we've demonstrated success in some core areas. Um, so so we eventually got there. Uh, uh, and what was the process for identifying you know your target customer in some of these segments? You know, say oil and gas. We um, we took a very strategic approach. So what what we're trying to do is very hard. We are trying to change an industry that hasn't changed in arguably in a century. Um, that really the last great innovation in the metals industry was steel, and um, and so we recognize that that it wasn't just going to be a ca- the case of saying here's this really great technology here are all the things it's capable of. Look at our data now. Let's change. Um, we were. We were going to be up against very strong incumbents. We were going to be introducing technology into markets that um, that don't know how to adopt new technology, um, and so we had to be very strategic about about who we engaged with and who we partnered with and how we how we did that in the marketplace. And really, at the end of the day, what it came down to was who has the most to gain from the new capabilities that we were going to enable. And those are the those are the companies and the entities that we've partnered with. Um, and that have helped us bring this bring this change about in some very big markets. 
Amazing. Amazing. So you've done a little fundraising. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so what is it? You've raised upwards of $42 million. You recently raised a $33 million round that included Peter, uh, Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. Um, you've added two new directors to your board, and I, I want to come back and, and ask you about that. Um, but first of all, what are the some differences in your fundraising strategies for growth stage in terms of who you're looking at speaking to and the type of um, you know, it's, it's not all money's not the same, but the money you've been looking for versus when you were raising capital at an earlier stage. In in fact, a lot of our investors have um, have been the same the same people or the same entities through multiple rounds of financing. So um, we have several of our customers that that have been engaged with us as both as customers and as investors uh, through more than one round of financing. Um, when we raised the last round of financing. Uh, we wanted to bring in um, some uh, some new insight from through the the equity capital raise, and really we recognized um, before we raised the money that the founders fund had a they they have a, a manifesto. In fact, I shouldn't say a focus; it's a manifesto that resonated with us. They're very focused on investing in companies that are sector creators, and we felt that they appreciated the vision we are trying to achieve. This isn't for us about demonstrating nanolaminated alloys for one single application or one single industry. It really is about the broad implications of this class of materials and this this type of manufacturing process and its ability to impact a number of industries. And they recognize that. They also recognize with us the complexity involved in achieving that. And so um, and so it was really about finding that right partnership uh, that that is going to get us to the ultimate vision. I think, again, for every venture, that partnership is going to look different and the right, you know, the right partner is going to be different. And And so it's really just a question of trying to figure out what you're trying to accomplish and how you can surround yourself with the right the right partners that are going to help you get there. Um, and for us, it, it meant that it meant that team from the Founders Fund and many of our existing uh, customers and investors. Well, and I would say, you know, get back to the fact that you've now added two new directors. How, how big is your, your your board now? We have three people on the board. Okay. So. And so, that yeah, that's a big raise. You get, you know, two, two, new, two new people on it. Is, mm-hmm. Does that, knowing that some of these at this stage with it being growth stage and that this the money coming in is going to want to add someone on the board, did that also influence your decision of, all right, who am I – who am I bringing to the table with a check because they're going to be sitting in here helping me, you know, lead the vision? Absolutely. And that, that goes back to my earlier comment that, that we really looked at, at fundraising as a way of bringing in partners into the venture. So whether they're, you know, partners that are shareholders only or partners that are shareholders and uh, participating in the board of directors, uh, they are partners across the board. So, no pun intended. Um Seattle. What's it like building a startup there? What should people know about the Seattle startup system, ecosystem as I sit here in New York City? Yeah, there's, you know, there's a, a great um, mantra in real estate that it's all about location, location, location. And I think, I think there's some truth to that in, in entrepreneurship as well. We are, we are lucky in, um, in the Seattle area and Washington State in general that that we have all of the right pieces uh, for a material science startup. We have um, access to capital. So Dan that I mentioned earlier, who's really our founding board member, he he chairs the Alliance of Angels here in Seattle. And so 
he's part of an active community of early stage investors that um, they were they were part of the support structure that allowed us to get our company off the ground. Um, we also have we have direct access to a university that's that's world class. So we have access to talent, access to uh, the infrastructure that's necessary for the kind of research that we do. And as well, um, we have a community that appreciates the need for material science. Um, certainly, the you know Boeing's role, Warehouser's role in this um, in this community um, make a big difference in terms of our orientation towards material science. So it it's really the it was the right place for us to be in getting started. And I feel like we were very lucky that we were here doing what we were doing, and that uh, and that we've been able to take advantage of that ecosystem and getting this this company off the ground. Very cool. So uh, what thoughts on failure? What role does uh, failure play in success? <laughs> I think the term failure means different things to different people. I, um, I and my team don't accept failure. So failure to us is when you fall down and you decide not to get back up again or you stumble and you say, that's, that's it, I've had enough. Um, and it's just not, it's not part of our vocabulary um, but but certainly the stumbling part is, um, and I think it's it's an absolute necessity that we accept that we're going to stumble along the way, we're going to make wrong decisions, um, and we're going to have to correct them, and um, and that really success is about getting up again and and you know starting over if we have to, or continuing the journey and um, and finding a better way. So. You know, we've we faced our fair share of uh, of challenges. We um, we notably burned down our first production facility. Uh, we had an equipment malfunction, and on the opening day of boating season in 2013, our first production facility burned down. And I think there were a lot of people that thought that was it, but we said no dice, got back up, and started over again. So here we are, manufacturing at large scale. <laughs> in the area, so comes up with challenges that the rest of us haven't thought about. Yeah, that. Wow, that's a sort of a spectacular way to start to start your business. Burn <laughs> well, things down. <laughs> it's the reality of entrepreneurship, though. I think the companies that you know that we look at and um, and we hold up as examples are are the companies that have faced those kinds of challenges and been able to get back up and you know and find a find a path forward. That's that's what the whole thing is all about in my mind. So nothing else people can l- listen to this interview and think, you know what? She burnt down her facility and she still was able to get, you know, <laughs> P- Peter Thiel to, and, and others to invest. So, you know, how how bad can my failure be? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, we want everyone to take something away and, and be be motivated. Um you're, I mean, you're tackling such a big market in such an incredible global problem, and it's a, you know, global economic, as you've already pointed out, a GD, GDP issue on all of this. How do you build a team and a culture that is capable of um, hanging in there for this long term um, and, and contributing to the long term growth of the company that you're building? I think probably the most important thing for us when we when we got started was that we had a very clear vision for what we were trying to accomplish. Um, and the way the way to get there has changed along the way, but the vision itself um, was clear from the start. We knew what we were about. We knew what we were trying to accomplish, and that's been communicated to every member of our team. So, um, so when we say that 
that this is a mission-oriented organization, we really mean it. We really mean that um, we are oriented towards achieving that vision uh, that that we've described for ourselves that involves realizing this this class of materials um, at an industrial scale at a cost that's competitive. And we've also defined very specifically the impact we want to have on on certain industries. Um, and so that's, I think, that for us has been, um, it's been translated into our culture. Um, beyond that, you know, for us, we we value very highly our confidence and our rigor when it comes to this this capability as well. We recognize that in a lot of the applications we're pursuing, um, we are the safety factor. We are the difference between, um, you know, a, a piece of infrastructure that corrodes and fails and one that doesn't. We are the strength in a bridge. We're the toughness in an automobile car door. And so, um, and so that means a responsibility to be confident in our fields and rigorous about our um, about our our studies and um, and so that's also you know that's that's manifest across the team in, in every aspect of what we do not just the engineering and I think beyond that we are inspired we're inspired by what we're doing and the second definition in the dictionary says inspiration is the product of creative thought and action right and I like to I like that I like that you know there's a certain element of of imagination on the one hand and initiative on the other. And that that also really defines who we are. And um and and it doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, the accounting team or the quality team or the manufacturing team or the team that's defining the next new architecture for material. All of those attributes are part of our culture. How big's your team now? Um, we don't, so we don't disclose our our team size. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, but it's um, big, it's, but, but it's big know, enough that you've got lots of people in all sorts of functions you have to oversee. We do, we do. Uh, um, 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 and how's that? How's that for you as being, you know, in charge? Um, it's again, it it all comes back to the vision, and in my mind, we're um, we are all responsible at different levels in the organization. For that vision, and so um, for me, it's you know it's been a case of building a leadership team and um, and an engineering team and an accounting team, as I mentioned, that um, that all see that vision and that have you know that have a um, a contribution to the culture that's a positive contribution, and um, and it's no different than than you know finding partners in our in our venture capitalists and our customers. Um, it's it's just you know these are the guys that I get to work with every day and. Um, and they are, in a way, an extension of my family. We we get to collaborate every day on trying to make this this uh, vision a reality, and it's incredibly fun. Amazing, amazing. One last thing I'd like to ask you before we get to our pay-it-forward questions is, um, you know, any advice for first-time founders in terms of, um, you know, starting a company with somebody else like uh, that, you know, I meet a lot of solo founders. I meet a lot of people who found companies together. Any advice for first time entrepreneurs? I I would say um, regardless of whether you're founding a venture on your own or founding it with with a partner, um, I would say two things. I would say, number one, know what you're about. So this this comment about having a vision and defining it very specifically is really important. Um, and I, I, we actually, my co-founder and I, um, 
had an exercise where we went through and we said, okay, what what do we how would we write the New York Times article that defines our success, you know, 10 years from now? And and we sat down and we did that. We did it independently and we described kind of a vision for the future. Um and and probably the most important thing for both of us was was making sure that we were that we were looking at the future in the same way. Um, and so that, you know, just having that clarity of vision was absolutely critical because so many things are going to go wrong, you know, from a, from day to day, we don't always see eye to eye, but at the end of the day, it's about the vision. It's about achieving that ultimate goal and having good clarity around that was absolutely essential to us. So I would say, I would say that's, that's absolutely the most important thing. The other thing is <clears throat> it's going to, it's going to take a village, right? It's going to take a team. <laughs> And um, and finding partners and finding collaborators and finding you know other leaders that are willing to join with you is going to be absolutely critical. So so just be ready for that and always be on the lookout. Yeah, you you, you never know where you're going to find someone. So mm-hmm. th- thank you for sharing that, and I love that idea of that exercise. You know, write your success story and do it independently, and make sure you're on the make make sure you're on the same vision. All right, so here, not that the rest of this hasn't been fun, but this is where we get, you know, our fast, snappy answers uh, with our pay it forward section. So what are your primary sources of information? <laughs> I, um, I, I don't really know how to answer that because I, I think I get information from so many different sources. I, I remember the quote from um, Sir Francis Bacon that said, reading makes a full man writing makes a precise man and conference makes a ready man. And so I would say from all of those, <clears throat> from reading, from writing, from you know, conferencing or, or joining with others, I've been able to get information. So, um, so it, it's all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere you can take it in. Amen. <laughs> uh, what book are you reading? I am right now reading The Great Bridge by um, David McCullough, which is this, it's the story of the Brooklyn Bridge. And it is the most unbelievable story of a father and son that had a vision and that did not quit until they they saw it realized. Wow. Do you have any rituals or habits you swear by? I think there, there are sort of three things that are important to me personally, um, my physical life, my intellectual life, and my spiritual life. And so I try to make sure that I, that I don't let any of those um, fall by the wayside that I always, you know, I, I always find a way to, you know, get a workout in um, and keep engaging myself intellectually and, and spiritually as well. So, um, but I, I wouldn't say it's, it's uh, habitual enough that I can call it a ritual. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Who are three entrepreneurs or leaders you admire? I have the benefit of so many contemporaries, so many so many um, other entrepreneurs that have inspired me in what I do. So every everyone from Andrew Carnegie to Nikola Tesla to Charles Martin Hall to now Washington Roebling and um, and John Roebling, his father. It, it's just I think there's so many stories there about um, about men and women that have overcome adversity to to achieve what they thought was a vision for the future. What's the best advice you ever received? Um, well, I think just now I, the, the, the advice that I got from Dan Rosen that continues to echo in my mind, especially now in our venture about, you know, small companies, uh, more small companies go out of business because of indigestion than starvation is really, 
um, continues to echo and uh, and remind us of the importance of focus as we as we get this venture off the ground. Um, and so I I, uh, I remind myself of that just about every morning. That's, I'm, I'm going to take that advice to heart. Are there any particular myths that you would like to dispel for our listeners? Um, there's one really big one. I I I have been as a as a woman and as an entrepreneur uh, starting a venture in the United States. The the beneficiary of um, of a system that allows that has allowed me to go out and and do what I want to do, realize this vision. So I could dream a big vision and I could go out and execute on it. And I think for a lot of us that that seems like some kind of a treasure that we just found. And and I think that's a great myth. It's um, it is decidedly a gift that we have this ecosystem in the United States that allows us as women especially to pursue our visions, and there's a certain responsibility that goes along with that in, in trying to make sure that we, that we preserve that responsibility or that capability, that opportunity, and that we continue to expand on it from one generation to the next. What words of advice would you give to listeners about taking risks and closing the confidence gap? Oh, wow. Um, I would go back to what I said earlier about the vision. Have a really clear vision. Know what you're about and what you're trying to get to. Because um, getting there is going to challenge is going to challenge all of us. I mean, it, you know, it, I'm challenged every day in my confidence, in my ability to execute. And, um, and it's the vision that, that allows me to get up in the morning and say, okay, let's take on one more challenge. Can you give me the name of a female entrepreneur who is below the radar screen that we should know about? I don't know. I, I and that's and maybe that's the answer to the question is that you don't you don't know what you don't know. But I'm I am on the lookout for that for the next one as well. All right. Well, we, when you find that next female entrepreneur in Seattle, we should know about. I want an, an email or a tweet so, you know, we can add this to the show notes. And finally, what does think broad mean to you? I for me um for me it means there is no boundary to what you can accomplish. So thinking broad is is about seeing those possibilities without seeing the boundaries. Fantastic. Thank you so very much for this conversation, Christina. I've just absolutely loved it. Oh, thank you, Kelly. It's been my delight. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover BroadMic and grow the BroadMic community. BroadMic is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think Broad.